0: This weather reminds me, um, back before we hired Cade and we were working the transition between uh, campus ministers, we decided that we wanted to get out on the road and visit some of our supporting congregations. So we were out at the Mulberry Congregation, and that's where our, uh, our financial manager, Rindy, she's a member there. She works here in our office. And um, so we're out at, um, we're out at Mulberry, And, you know, of course, the college students then are leading the service, and I'm going to preach. And so I get up to preach, and right then, this, you know, this weather gets about like this, but even harder. And then one of these lightning bolts comes down. Boom! It's just loud, like an explosion, right out in the the parking lot. That was bad enough, except this little kid just starts screaming, bloody murder at that point, you know, just right in the middle of everything. So I say all that to say that uh, I'm just going to keep going, and unless something catches on fire, I'm just, you know, you can jump, you can holler, whatever, I'm just moving on. Unless there's a fire, and then then we'll do something. Because it's just sound, and, you know, God's got it. 1 Corinthians 13, let's take a look at that. Oh, this is such an important chapter. This is the chapter that they read at weddings, and uh, when Paul put this in there, he knew that we needed something to read at weddings. Um, Don't you believe it. Um, 12, 13, and 14, again, I want to emphasize this, are a unit, and uh, and of course we won't get to 14 next Sunday night, so you're just going to have to wait for all that good controversial stuff. But um, twelve, 13, and 14 are part of a complete unit, and he is addressing a problem at Corinth, and he's been and, and actually, this, this doesn't come out of the blue. he's been talking about this all along. They have some problems in that church not demonstrating the right kind of love for one another, and the way it's showing up, it's showing up actually. Not just outside of their worship experience. It's showing up in their worship experience. And so even though you have certain people that are gifted with spiritual gifts, they're not using those gifts to build one another up. They're using those gifts to to position themselves for more honor or to establish their power or authority over others. And uh, so in 12, 13, and 14... He's getting to this particular issue. And in 13, not only does he address the problem of the spiritual gifts that have been given in chapter 12, and then he's going to address the, um, the way that those gifts are being um, abused and warped in the, in the assembly in chapter 14, but he's also letting chapter 13, this, this, uh, this praise of love he's letting it extend all the way back through the entire letter to include some of the issues he's already uh, spoken about, like suing one another and uh, disenfranchising the poor and taking advantage of the uh, underprivileged, the way that they are um, abusing love and demonstrating it in... uh, in shameful ways with the man who has the relationship with his stepmother and uh, the, the ones who are making a, uh, a mockery of marriage and are living in all sorts of strange arrangements. We read about that in 1 Corinthians 7. And then even the way that they're exercising their freedom in a way that hinders and upsets the faith of others that we saw in 8, 9, and 10. Uh, all of that comes under this heading of love. So don't think that Paul gets to a point in, you know, that he, he says, okay, uh, chapter 11. Let's, oh, by the way, he also includes the whole business with the women taking the head coverings off and praying and then the way that they're practicing the Lord's Supper where some of them are going hungry and they're having their own little Lord's Supper and ignoring others. So Paul doesn't just come to a point and say, okay, we've got to talk about Lord's Supper. All right, we got that. All right, underline it, move on. He he. He deals with it, but he's building towards two main discussions. One is this discussion of love in chapter 13. The next one will be what he discusses in chapter 15 with the importance of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so he's going to be building towards that as well, which he'll show you is going to be the fullest expression of love. Okay, let's, let's read this very familiar passage and um, read it carefully. It actually starts in the last part of 1231. Someone put the numbers in the wrong spot. But they've been dead for 500 years, so we can't say anything to them. All right. Um, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nobody. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man... I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. I'm going to go ahead. I want you to feel the connection that he keeps going. He you don't just have a hard end at 13 and then that's it. He has come to a, this, this, this ode to love and praise of love, all right? And then he's going, to, he, he's going to go up high, talking about this lofty idea of love, and then he's going to bring it right back down to their experience. And so we'll pick up 14 in a couple of weeks, Lord willing. Here is what's happening in this chapter. Um, The first three verses, he mentions three particular issues in Corinth where, um, well, people are getting ahead of themselves. One of those is uh, tongues. And by the way, these will show up again in 14. We've already seen some of this in 12. Uh, The other is uh, prophetic powers and the knowledge of mysteries. And then you have, it may be three, it may be four. Then you have faith uh, so as to remove mountains. It's like a miraculous, wonder-working faith even. And then you have this idea of um, self-denial that if I give away everything I have and if I deliver up my body uh, to be burned some of you probably say if I deliver up your 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 English version may be if I deliver up my body so that I may boast about you know, dying or martyrdom that's okay either one of those will work we've got a textual problem there that you know some ancient manuscripts say burn some of them say boast it, eh, don't worry about it it's a uh, it, it, either way, his point is made, okay? His point is made, and you can't, you can't change the whole meaning of it just depending on what word is best there. Um, he's mentioning these specific things, uh, the, the tongues, the prophecies, the knowledge, and the self-deprivation. And he's saying that without the quality of love, they become meaningless, and they become meaningless in three particular ways. This is why I said there might be three issues. There could be more than that, but it could be a, but it's whatever it is, it's a set of three. Because you'll notice that in verse one, he says, uh, if I can speak in tongues of men and angels, but I do not have love, what is he? He says, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And that's, that's, his, that's his creative, energetic way of saying, I'm just babbling (laughs) he says if I have you know this amazing and and, and they viewed tongue speaking as having this sort of hotline to the divine okay if you could get into the ecstatic trance and speak in the tongues of angels then then you had a special connection with the divine uh, realms above he says that's great he and by the way he'll never say now you quit doing that He'll say, We're going to stop all that nonsense. He never says that. He says, he, You know, you speak in tongues, speak in tongues. But he's going to put boundaries on it. And those boundaries are not to rein in the tongue speaker as much as everything has to have boundaries in terms of love. I would say that the analogy to that for you know, because we haven't had a lot of experience tongue speaking. I think most of us, some of you may have. I had a friend who. Um, He's a he's a minister now, and he grew up uh, in a in a Pentecostal church. And I said, "Tell me what tongue speaking was like." And he goes, "Well, you know," he goes, "I don't really know." He said, "But I'll tell you what was neat. We had this little teaching, like class book, little little lesson book, and it taught you how to speak in tongues. And I gave you a little lesson on how to do it. I thought, well, it, it's supposed to be all spontaneous and everything." And he goes, "No, no." He says, you, "There's a way you you pick it up and you learn it." And, uh, and so there was a way to kind of get into it and everything, and, and you could go with it. Now, whatever it is we're doing, whether we're preaching, whether we're teaching, and if we do that without love, even if we're sharing the gospel, and we do it without love, then it's empty in some way. It's hollow in some way. And I think people notice that. When we reduce the gospel down to a sales pitch and we're going to kind of just throw it out there and hit people right between the eyes saying, I'm telling you the truth, I'm telling you the truth, but they know that it has no love, then it's going to ring hollow. Good news is it's not hard to develop this way of love. Love is more than a gift. Love he has already described as the most excellent way, which means that it's a particular way of life. It's a particular way of living. Okay, so tongue speaking, he says, that's fine, but if you, ha- if you do not have love, it's empty, it's brassy, it, 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 it's hollow. Second way that love matters is, um, he says, if I have this, this prophetic power, if I have the ability to understand mysteries and knowledge, and he's already talked about knowledge. Knowledge has shown up in here. In 8.1, he said, uh, love builds up and knowledge puffs up. He's already compared love and knowledge once to the Corinthians. And, and they were, you know, you remember back in the first four chapters. Oh, they're, they're, they're putting a lot of stock in, in, uh, in their own wisdom and their own ability and their own knowledge, their own ability to know things. And he's saying, let's say you have all that, but you don't have love. His conclusion is, then I am no... And he, and he applies it to himself. He uses himself as an example. He says, let's say I have this. And by doing that, we know that Paul's not just talking about himself, right? We get that. He's, he's, he's using that language so that we identify with it. And it's like, so when Paul talks about himself and he says, if I do this and I don't have that, that includes also me. It includes all of us. It's like a self-examination. He says, so if you have knowledge and if you have faith and if you have all of those, those kind of mental, spiritual qualities, but you don't have love... His conclusion is, I'm nobody. That's the, the I know it says I'm nothing. Uh, in Greek, the best translation is probably I'm, I'm nobody. That's the one I prefer. Um, and you know, somebody else can feel different. But he's really getting to the point that, and it's the way we use nobody to say, uh, you know, when somebody says, oh, I'm really important, and the insult is, uh, who are you? You're a nobody. You're nobody that I should He's saying, I'm not anything important if I don't have love. No matter how many credentials I give, no matter how much I exalt myself without love, you're nobody. And then he he has the third set. If I give away everything I have, if I deliver up my body. In other words, self-sacrifice, which would seem to be Uh, admirable in and of itself oh look how much that person is suffering for the sake of the church look how much they're suffering for for the cause and yet he says even with that kind of self discipline and self-denial without love then it benefits nothing so here the translation of uh you know it it's nothing now it's been modified by saying there's no gain there's no benefit In in other words, all you've done is you've just denied yourself. And what it seems to be indicating is a form of self-righteousness. And we've seen that. We've seen that in history. We've probably seen that in in others. and, And maybe we've even recognized it in ourselves at times. That we've thought that, well, if we deny ourselves and if we just, you know, if we just forego all this, then we'll be better people. And instead of being better people, all we do is we get filled with resentment that's what self-denial without love looks like it gains nothing okay so he said there's three things without love without love all of these gifts all of these uh special abilities they either um they're either hollow or they end up making us nobodies or it ends up gaining nothing now the next three verses four five or four rather four five six and seven this is what you might call his um, it's it's imagine that this is a little poem that Paul breaks into called in praise of love okay and, and, and it's very lofty and it's very formal and, and there's a form for this where um you could do this in the ancient world you know in praise of caesar or in praise of so and so or you could say in praise of patriotism or in praise of of happiness okay so you could you could give a little uh speech about a person or a particular quality or virtue or even a city or um uh you know or 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 an age and you would say some things about it and uh He's doing this, but he's doing it around the idea of love. Agape is what he's talking about. And it's as if he's personified agape and turned agape into an individual. And by the way, some of the descriptions here are descriptions that we also use of God. That God is patient. God is kind. But Paul very much is, Paul's not, you know, Sneaking God into this by talking about love. No, he wants to mention what love is because remember, he's already said, this is the most excellent way. Love is a way. So he's already, he's already showing us that love is much more than a feeling. I think we're all mature enough to understand that. Love is much more than just, you know, oh, my heart's a flutter. It's Valentine's Day. Oh, you know, it, it's more than that, okay? Love is. And, and many of us know here, love can take hard work. It can take dedication. It can take doing more for another and, sa- and giving up our own. Okay, so we get that. Love is a set of actions. It's real. This is what he has in mind as he goes on about this virtue. <clears throat> and he says some things that it is and some things that it's not. We're going we're to crack these open just a little bit. Love is patient and kind. Now, notice that love is patient in 4, and then if you go to the end of this little section in 7, the last thing he says is that love endures. It's a nice balance. Love is patient, and it endures. Both of those are lasting qualities. Uh, love is kind, and it does not envy or boast. All right, back in three, three. He mentioned that the Corinthians have a problem with envy. And in chapters 1, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, he goes on about their problems with boasting. That, uh, you know, that they've got real issues with this. He's not just selecting these ideas at random. He had not just sat down at the table, you know, with his little quill pen in hand, you know, hmm, what can we say about love? This is targeted. (laughs) This is targeted. He's saying, he's he's putting a mirror in front of them, but it's a mirror that shows them that this is not what they are, okay? He's reflecting it back on them. All the things that he's brought up before uh, fall into this. Um, It is not arrogant or rude. Now, that word for rude is interesting. Um, Oh, let's go back to the word for arrogant. Arrogant is that same word, and and that's such a a bland word for what he really intends to say. It's the same word as 8-1. Love is not puffed up. That's perfect, the perfect image. You know, we say that now, and I remember we said this as kids, that if somebody got too proud, you know, if there was somebody that you know i like the expression they had a chip on their shoulder you know we'd say they get all bowed up you know they they get all bowed up and you know big and they think that there's something that's what he's saying that that you know knowledge puffs up and these people think that they're so important and when we uh, are so we think ourselves so important that our feelings get hurt and we get easily offended or we think things ought to be a certain way, we're lacking the kind of humility that really shows up when we have love. So he's contrasting this. He says love's not that puffed-up attitude that takes everything seriously. I had a wonderful talk this morning as we were beginning worship with one of our sisters, and uh, we were talking, and we were talking about jokes, and I said what I appreciate is... You're able to laugh, and you're able to share laughter. And um, and then we just had some jokes right there. And I love that because when we come together, we're so at ease with one another. And we're not just being silly and foolish. It's an ease that says, you know, we can we can make fun of ourselves. We can make fun of one another. And, and it's not ridicule. It's not nasty or mean. It's just joy. And I think that's a quality of love. And, and, and I think that that's what you know, in in an overly sensitized world, which we have today, that's really what we need. So love's not puffed up. Love is, uh, well, it's not that. It's the opposite of that. And it's not rude. Now, The word rude here is not just somebody who's grouchy. And uh, this word for rude has to do with what's shameful. Um, He has already mentioned the problem with shameful behaviors uh if you go back and look at 736 uh if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed so in other words if you're acting shamefully towards your betrothed he's saying that love has also a certain amount of respect towards others that we know the proper way to behave um that we show respect not because it's just the culture or the custom, but we show respect so that we can um, so that we don't shame others and don't act shamefully towards others uh, it doesn't insist on having its own way. he's mentioned their problems with this, like in uh, any, remember the the discussions of the idol meet in, in chapter ten he says you know if if eating meat is going to cause my brother to lose his faith, then you know what? I, I just won't do it. He said, I'll forego that. Now, those who want to seek their own way, they're acting in a way that's not love. But he's already shown them how to act in love so that what you can do what? So that you can build others up. Um, it's not irritable. It's not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. And here, wrongdoing, you might think of little simple things like... Uh, you know, saying a dirty word or smoking cigarettes or something. No, he's, ta- he's talking about much more than that. Wrongdoing here is injustice. It's, it's, it's the opposite. It's a word that means the opposite of righteousness. 180 degrees in the other direction. So love is not going to rejoice in unrighteous things, such as taking one another before the courts. Going to the unjust Corinthian courts and taking those poor people there and taking advantage of them for your own gain—that's not love. Hmm. Um, it rejoices. Now he's getting to the positive attributes again. It rejoices with the truth, and now it bears all things. The next two are um, are great. You know, it bears and it endures. You, you have those as the bookends, but right in the middle, believes all things, hopes all things, or hopes in everything, whatever. He's, he's saying it's all inclusive. So, but love has this capacity to believe and to hope. They're related. Now, this is where English fails us, because um, we know at the end of uh, verse 13, what are the three that abide? Faith, hope, and love. Well, if We had a verb. We know that you can have hope, and if you're going to do the verb of that hope, what are you going to do? You're going to hope. I hope. You hope. He, she, it hopes. You know. But then we also know hope's a noun. Now, faith we treat like a noun. I have faith. You have faith. We all have faith. But we don't. Faith is a verb. We believe. I believe, you believe, he, she, it, believes, okay? In Greek, it's the same. I guess we do belief and, you know, believe and belief, but belief we tend to think of as a particular set of things that we believe, whereas faith is more like trust. But the word believe, I wish in English we had a verb form of, you know, oh, I faith, I faith, you faith. He and she faiths. I wish we could do that because that's what's happening here. So when he says it, it believes all things, he's saying it faiths all things. And he has just drawn a wonderful little connection between verse 7 and 13 so that when faith, hope, and love abide, it's because love faiths all things and hopes all things. It bears all things and endures all things. And then in 8, he starts his next section when he says, love never falls. Okay, I know some of you have love never ends. Mm, That'll work, I guess. I don't know, but it's an interpretation. The actual word is it never falls, which maybe, you know, when you hear that, you probably think love never fails. That's good, too. Uh, to fall is to falter or to, uh, you know, again, this is metaphorical. He's not saying that, you know, you put love up on a shelf and it's going to fall off. Uh, what he's saying is love doesn't come to an end or um, in some way end up fading away or getting nullified and abolished. Now, what you have to understand here is in 8 12. This is what I'm still wrapping my head around this, so let's do this together. In in, in verses 8 through 12, Paul has just said that love bears all things and it endures all things, and so he's saying it's never going to fall away. It's never going to pass away or fade away. He has just shifted our perspective to the future. And everything he's going to say in this section is about the enduring quality of love. That love is the thing that will make it into the next world. Uh, Now I'll say this before we go any further. Sadly, this section, which is all about the future, has sort of been kicked to the past so that we can have a convenient way to root out tongue speakers. So we think, well, you know, guess what? We get the Bible finished, and then we got everything we need, and then we don't need all this stuff. Okay, first of all, I want you to know that Paul is—if Paul was going to talk about the finished collection of Scripture called the New Testament—I think he would have described it much more, much better than he does here. I I really do. When you you look over in Second Peter, and Peter seems to have some idea of the collected writings of Paul, and that's much more specific this he's just talking about this thing called the perfect Uh, if paul was going to talk about scripture he'd talk about scripture one way of looking at this though is is that paul is here saying now when the perfect comes meaning the new testament that means that all these other things are going to go away that's one way of looking at it. that's called technically that's called the cessationist view it's not my preference of understanding this. I could be wrong, but it's not my preference because I think Paul's going, and here's the deal, I think that, I think in some ways that's called special pleading because what it does is it gives you a convenient out to say we had miracles for a while, but then they end. We, we had, um, uh, you know, tongue speaking, but that's all gone. That, that, You know, that went the way of the dodo bird and the telegram and all this kind of stuff. Here's the thing. To put limits on those things, you do not have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. The limits are inherent in what Paul is talking about. That any sort of manifestation of the Spirit that does not contribute to the overall building up of the church, any manifestation of the Spirit that is not consistent with Scripture is is a sham. Now that's not only in First Corinthians, but you can see that in the book of Acts as well. So uh oh best story is Simon the sorcerer who says, Boy, I want that Holy Spirit power. I I could do a lot with that. Peter says, You are trying to manipulate the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do that. Um but anyway, I I think a better way to read this, and I want to suggest this, is that what Paul is talking about here is he's saying that everything that we rely on, even our own knowledge, even our own ability to read, even our own ability to figure things out, he says all of that in this world before Christ returns is going to be limited. Paul has in mind the idea that there's this age and then there's the age to come. You've got two ages. And Christ is the turn of the ages. Now, What ended up happening for Paul and other believers was that the Messiah brought in the new age and and, uh, the old covenant passed away. But now we're living in kind of this in-between time. And yet there's still more to come. He says we still live in this limited existence, but what will be coming this way, what will be invading our reality now from the future is the overwhelming experience of perfect love and maturity so in verse 10 when he says when the perfect comes you can put that in quotation marks when the perfect the complete comes then the partial gets destroyed it gets nullified it gets replaced it expires and passes away these are these are categories of understanding nature and understand this is this is big he's saying that when we get to that state where everything is complete and by the way if you want to get some idea of what he's talking about read colossians where he says that you know christ is in all things and above all things and everything is connected and there's that great view of christ being that which unites all creation together Paul's saying that all these things, now now think about what this means for the Corinthians, because now he's starting to get a little more specific with them. He's taking this pin of the future. The future is the state of things. I mean, God's future, not our future, not us, not the future that we create. That's That's our arrogance. You know, that that we have this idea of a future where with our science and technology and our knowledge and our ability to read scripture and all the so on and so forth, we're going to create a perfect age all on our own and God's going to be proud. That's arrogance. And they had it too. He's talking about that future, that home of righteousness that God is going to bring in, the new heaven and new earth. He's saying that judges everything that we do. And what he's doing is he's taking that like a pen and he's poking a hole in their puffed-up behavior and saying, oh, so you think your knowledge is all it. Well, when the perfect comes, your partial knowledge is going to pass away. You think that tongue speaking is very important. Well, when the perfect comes, those abilities are going to pass away. It's not accidental that he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. And I reasoned like it. Notice how what he says. When I was a child, I spoke like a child spoke. Tongue speaking was speaking. When I was a child, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Knowledge and faith, the mysteries. He, he, he's pointing at it. He, he's telling them that when they think that they are so special with their high and mighty ability to have all this knowledge and to speak all of these great spiritual tongues, he says, you're really behaving like little children. He says, there's a much more glorious state coming, but it'll be all because of God. He says, the only thing that endures then is love, which is why he concludes with that image. He says, right now we see in a mirror, but it's dim, it's hazy. But then, and notice he he keeps moving between now and then now and then, then we'll see face to face. Right now we know in part, but then we shall know completely. There's that word for the perfect, or or close to it. He says, even as we have been completely known. And that's why he speaks of the abiding. When he says that faith, hope, and love abide, these three, those are the things that endure into God's future age. So now he has just raised the standard as high as it can be raised. So that now when we get into 14, and he starts, he has to do this before he starts challenging them. Otherwise, it's going to sound like he's getting into the middle of the match where they've got people prophesying and people tongue-speaking and all of this verbal chaos going on in the assembly. And if Paul just goes in there like a referee and says, all right, foul on you, foul on you, you win, you lose, he's just going to be one faction among many. But if he judges it all by the standard of God's love, now we begin to look at things differently. And he has called them in love to grow up. So that's what I believe could be going on in chapter 13. And I hope that you've gained something from that. Um, We're going to sing this song and we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a good example of all this. That you know, every Lord's Supper that we participate in every Sunday... Is it, it is in, very, in many ways, and, and I'm glad that we hold it dear and we do observe it every week. But you know, in some ways, it's just a glimmer or a shadow of what is to come with that feast and that fellowship with Christ in eternity. So as special as it is now, just how much more special is it is? And that's what we need to always keep in mind, that there's something great coming that uh, we're just now getting a glimpse of it. And what that ought to do is it ought to excite us but also fill us with humility. So uh, let's stand and sing, and then Lowell will dismiss us in prayer.